30 seconds, reality as you know it will cease to exist. In its place, you will find a new dimension, identical to the one you left behind, only slightly better. Take a deep breath and open your mind to the magic within you. This is no ordinary podcast. This podcast is with Richard Three is a magic number. One, of course, is the loneliest number. And two can be as bad as one. And in fact, is often worse. Because then two end up opposing each other and you get stuck in a basic binary. Black and white, good and evil, Republican and Democrat, paper versus plastic. Dualities are a drag. As we're seeing now in this particularly polarizing time, they often lead to extremism with each side trying to outdo the other, even though they're ultimately just two sides of the same coin. Which is why we need three, the magic number. Three introduces a new point, a perspective on the other two. It's a place to stand where we can take it all in and say, yeah, well, that's clearly a load of bullshit. Let's go find something more fun to do. Probably no coincidence that three gives us the triangle, reminiscent of both a wizard's hat and the shape created by an open ladder, one on which a wizard might perch while delivering a speech to the good people of Christchurch, as one particularly notable wizard has done for nearly 50 years. The Wizard of New Zealand, or Jack to friends, is as far as I know the only state-sanctioned wizard in the modern world. Originally from England, Jack ended up in Australian academia in the late 1960s, a weird, wild time of equally polarizing extremism in which Jack decided the only sane thing to do was get a gallery to declare him a living work of art, transform himself into a wizard, and instigate a new revolution that pursued no ideology greater than fun for fun's sake. Since moving to Christchurch, New Zealand in the early 70s, the Wizard of New Zealand has been an iconic tourist attraction, an incredible nuisance, and a miracle worker all depending on who you ask. I don't agree with everything the Wizard of New Zealand says, which I think is precisely the point. He doesn't want to convince you of anything, just confuse you enough to reconsider everything. So without any further ado, let's say yes to no and no to yes as we welcome our next guest, the Wizard of New Zealand. Well, hello, my dear wizard. Hello, Devin. How are you today? Oh, pretty good, actually. Pretty good. Wonderful. What's our magic word going to be? Shazam. Shazam. Oh, what a great word. All right. On the count of three. One, two, three. Shazam. Shazam. Now, I know that word as the word that uh, an old wizard gave to young Billy Batson in the comic book uh, Shazam or Captain Marvel. Is that what you're referring to? Or do you have another context for the word Shazam? As a small boy, yeah, as a small boy, I used to go up to the American base during the war when Mm -hmm. the bomber bases all around us were these American bomber bases. And I used to go up there and they had magazines and things. I picked up this one called Captain Marvel. 
And he wasn't a superhero because he had big muscles or could fly through the air. He had a magic word instead. So this is more the sort of magic I like. You get the magic word and that transforms things. So, And that was Shazam. Rather than Superman, I went for Captain Marvel. And that was when I first saw the American sort of comics of that type. It's it's great like how it's like a transference of power too because he he meets this figure who is wise and fits that classic wizard archetype and that wizard sort of gives him the word of power that unlocks this magic within him which I think is uh, a very important part of wizardry. Yes, and I had one too. The web is elf, A E L F, elf. Oh, okay. <laughs> the like the TV show from the eighties. This was this was back in the in the sixties. Okay, and uh, it was action for love and freedom was the was an acronym of that, but it was also Elf was a character in the Goon Show, the Elf Fred mm. concept. There was a Fred idea. Fred was a, the working class bloke with the flat cap on, and he was the you know the basic uh, sort of working class man, and that was the Elf. And used to insult him and call they call the intellectuals used to call them Elfs because they weren't intelligent like them, so it yeah. had that sort of despising the workers' attitude towards it. We liked the ALF, so we made ALF our, our word. It also could be the Australasian Liberation Front, but that was so we, we took it before the left could take it, so we were ahead of them on that one. Now, so I know uh, we're, we're probably going to jump around in chronology, but I know that you got your start in Australia um, during the 1960s, and uh, was this was ALF part of the fun revolution? Yes, it began as ALF and became the fun revolution shortly afterwards. We found that people who didn't like fun were a pretty bad lot to deal with, so we tended to stay away from them and just play along with the hippie philosophy of the time, rather, rather mm-hmm. than the uh, student radical tradition. Yeah, and so how did the, how did the fun revolution come about? Can you tell us about its genesis and some of the the things that you did? Well, I've written a book about it actually, which is mm-hmm. coming out soon on ebook. So I'd recommend to all your followers and readers and, and listeners to get hold of that when it comes out on ebook. It's called The Fun Revolution, and it's got a second title: Jack's Adventures in Ideology Land. This is me. <laughs> this is me as John Quixote. Charging at the windmills of ideology, mm-hmm. because I don't have an ideology. I thought I did, but I haven't, and this just makes it very difficult not to be an ideology. <laughs> so <laughs> that's because if you have fun, you don't have an ideology. It's just fun for its own sake, like a like a game, like a football match or any other game you play. There's really no reason for doing it in terms of some future payoff. So it becomes existential, and existentialism is is the key to the whole thing. I think just being who you are and growing with it. And not being able to sort of lay down what will happen in the future. Not trying to wedge yourself through the hole that you think you're supposed to be uh, the shape of, but allowing yourself to discover what shape you are. And it's very peculiar. <laughs> it comes out. So very strange things happen when you do things, when you do things for fun. You can yeah. reverse a lot of people's behavior onto themselves like a mirror effect. They're doing this to you. You do it back to them for fun and they get very disturbed by it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like jujitsu. You use their energy to uh, to bounce back on them. Well, that's an interesting uh, idea about like jujitsu because I think often we get in these head to head collisions where each side is pushing harder and harder yes, and harder. That's right. And uh, I, I always have appreciated Bugs Bunny's approach where Absolutely, he's, yeah. he ends up standing next to you and he's like, "Oh, what are we? What are we trying to shoot at here?" And it's like we're hunting rabbit. You're like, "Oh, all right, I want to hunt rabbit too. What a fun game that's that right. is!" Yes, twisty around. And also, you get that another side of it. 
is the uh, coyote and the roadrunner, of course, where the roadrunner doesn't do anything much, just make us beep, beep, and that's it. And everything, yeah. and, the, and the coyote has a massive strategy to get him, usually involving some high-tech materials of various types. Acme Company makes these things, and off he goes. Then the roadrunner disappears through a wall. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's hopeless. <laughs> It's kind of a comment on materialism in a way because he's he seems to be addicted to mail order catalogs and yes, whatever he's exactly, ordering yes, is is not filling the the <laughs> void in his life and giving him satisfaction. It's just he needs to order the bigger thing of dynamite next time and ends yes. up doing more and more harm to himself. Yes, yes. yes. that's 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 my favorite one. I think, but I've always liked Bugs Bunny. He goes back, of course, to Br'er Rabbit. And with his with his uh, way of dealing with the big dangerous animals around him by his little tricks and clever clever tr- manipulations of words, mm-hmm. yeah, the trickster archetype of uh, of of using the cleverness and wit rather than the brute force or the other uh, less savory weapons at our disposal. That's one of the reasons why I changed my name in 1968 um, <clears throat> from Ian, which is not a good name for me because I'm not Scottish. I was going mm-hmm. to be a John, but my my cousin was named John just before I was going to be baptized, and uh, so we had a problem of being known as Ian, which sounds a bit too nice for me. Too, I'm not really an Ian type, so I thought, what other version is there of John that isn't Ian? And it was Jack. Yeah, and Jack is the archetypal peasant, really, who outsmarts the giants and climbs the beanstalk and does all sorts of things. So, and Johnny Jack Tar and Jack is a name for all men, really, the Everyman Jack. So Mm -hmm. I chose the name Jack to be my name uh, as a sort of friendly name uh, uh, rather than the formal one. Well, so is this, you you changed your name to Jack before you gave up your name entirely and became the wizard? Yes, you have to do a transition. I've done everything slowly and carefully. I didn't do any sudden changes. I I wasn't enlightened, you know, with a sudden flash of lightning. I just moved gradually towards a more pleasant uh, using my knowledge of, of depth psychology and sociology i realized the importance of roles so to get the role of wizard was the perfect solution to me can you take us back to that moment when wizard i'm always curious about how this idea lands on certain people and speaks to them and i think you're one of the people who heard that message uh very early and has done quite a lot with it so i'm curious as to when um that wizard archetype started gravitating towards you and vice versa well i'm part of that culture and i'm a culturalist in the sense that i think we are our cultures largely rather than our race or our gender or anything else so as a cultural activist i needed at the culture that most appealed to me was a mixture of the christian at the technically the northern european type of christian the warrior christian rather mm-hmm. than the sacrificial christian which is why that poem the dream of the rude is so important to me that's a poem written in the, in the seventh century before Bede, even, which is that the, the cross is talking, had a dream. The cross dreams of Jesus coming onto the cross as a warrior approaches his destiny. And so he's a hero being uh, sort of tested. And that's one of the reasons why that particular form of Christianity interests me. And the fact that it was mixed up with the Arthurian romances, which is also a fascinating part of the Northern European Christianity. The only other culture like it, I think, is probably the Persian culture, because they had this complex Shah Nama, which is all about the the warriors and the kings and the battles and the heroics of the Persian kings. Now, Persia, being right in the middle of of a very dangerous area, is regularly invaded by real brutal bullies. And every time they invaded, within a very short time, 
they've been acculturated. They've been given this idea of her heroism and nobility and honor. And bit by bit, they moderated these ghastly invaders using their own mythological system. Now, that applies also to Northern Europe. Their mythological system, based on the Arthurian romances, modified the brutality, particularly the brutality of people like the, like the Vikings, into making them uh, more honorable. And hence, you get the idea of chivalry coming in. Getting a code of behavior to constrain some of the yeah, uh, the problematic exactly. elements of culture. Yeah, but you need to do it by dressing them up in nice clothes and having a lot of fuss made of them. And and what you always have is a vizier. That's the wizard figure, of course. The vizier mm. whispering in their ear, I think, sir, if you did this, it might be more effective. Oh, yeah, right you are. And you, but you yeah. must give the king all the credit. You must, yeah. you must make quite sure you're just the, the quiet little guy who has his ideas and passes them on. So you don't want fame for yourself or glory, but you want a better form of government. The man behind the curtain. I think it's interesting with the Wizard of Oz that uh, you have one figure who's trying to occupy both roles, the the image of the king and the lordly figure, and then also uh, the, the person who's operating behind the scenes and trying to make things go forward. Because he's got these terrible enemies. These wishes are so powerful. And he's just yeah. a showman from a fair who got blown there by mistake. He's landed in Oz. What the heck can you do? So he adapted a very smart strategy of inventing a persona that was really scary and then having glasses that made everything look good around you and so on. That's so I never I never actually had fully considered that of like being in a land where there's all powerful witches and everyone thinks that you're a wizard and you're like Oh, okay. Well, I definitely I can't do the magic that these witches can, but maybe I can. Uh, I'm a, I'm a showman, so yeah, maybe I can right. run with that. I'm just a showman. I've written a little article, one of my essays on this topic too, a long time ago. So that's an interesting topic, the one because there is dangerous magic around, and you can't uh, copy it. You have to find a way of just being able to put up a front to people don't don't fall for the other magic; they fall for your magic instead. And if it's fun. Mm-hmm. That form of magic is the best I can think of, is the magic that makes you feel really good and, you know, who cares anymore and she'll be right and so on. That's an Australian one. She'll be yeah. right. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing feeling when you can when you can let go of the normal ruminations and things that we uh, fill our heads with and be present and have fun. And I think you're right that it casts a glow over everything where you're in that fun movement moment and you're like, Oh, next week's going to be great, and the week after will be great, and it's just it's just all green lights from here on out. I can see past the horizon, and everything's going to be okay because you feel so centered. Well, all this was this came to a head <clears throat> came to a head when the students began to occupy buildings and were using mm-hmm. jargon I hadn't heard for fifty years. The communist jargon was coming back again. All the the yet the language of the left and so on was coming up again, and the same sort of hatred was being worked up. Now I was getting reforms at university quite successfully in tutorial techniques in in uh, we made we had jokes at the expense of the academics that weren't weren't nasty but just tease them a bit and they began to get more friendly and in the end the academics and the students and the uh, and the administration were coming together in these mass meetings which were fun meetings with with a chairman who was invisible an empty chair and that was yeah. alf that was the spirit of alf and people would speak and i said to them there is no point passing any emotions because they put it in the waste bin. So why bother? Why not just pass emotions instead? And that began to become like an evangelical meeting. And it, began to, <laughs> it got funnier and funnier. People said, oh, I'm sick of this bloody place. First off, and there was the vice chancellor in the middle of it all saying, joining in. And so it got more and more outrageous. And this wonderful feeling of fun began to develop all over the campus. And uh, hippies were then around. They came on a lot too and began to dance and wear their clothes. And we had 
We had battles with flour and water. It was a, it was an outrageous period. It lasted about a year, and that was the Fun Revolution. But it got, it was seen as a distraction from the real issues. The real issues were, of course, that we wanted violence. That if you get violence, you can get people motivated to do things. So if you can get people really full of hatred, they rush about and do a lot, lot of important things, political stuff mainly towards some sort of utopia, which I don't share this belief in utopia, but I just like the present time as it is. I enjoy life, so I don't want to change it. It might get worse. So um, that was how the thing began with these these large meetings. And that's in my book. A lot of it will be in the book, so I'm hoping that your listeners will, will get the copy from uh, Amazon when it comes out and see how what I did at that time. This is 1967 beginning and went on in 1968, which is the big year for us all. And that was right. true all over the world, actually. That was a very important year. So that was the time that I became a wizard because I'd had this feeling that I had to have a role that couldn't be controlled by people who are rational because I'm sick of people being rational because, generally speaking, it's an ideology in which you are going to get richer and more powerful, and I'm not interested in that at all. I'm a, I've been backpacking for about 10 years for that, so I wasn't really interested in getting money or power. But this, so this uh, movement towards uh, uh, utopia was, I think, a very dangerous one. Could we just stay where we are? Because it's pretty good being in Australia, you know, like happy mm-hmm. days in America. It's partly an illusion of the past, but it was also a lot more friendly than it is at the present time. So that was part of the whole process was to get a an existential uh, revolution in feeling. And the feeling was, what the heck, does it matter very much? Imagine you're now playing in a game of, of cricket or, or soccer or baseball. What happens when you're playing the game? What is going on? You enter into this magical world. When you cross the boundary, the whistle blows, and then something happens. You enter into another world, a world of competition, which isn't, or isn't let's all lovey-dovey and let's sing kumbaya. It's, it's aggression. It's skill involved, but you have to have a referee. Without a referee, it's not going to work at all. And that's the role of the wizard's part, is to be referees, to see that both sides get the maximum pleasure out of attacking each other. You need conflict and competition throughout the whole universe. Without it, it dies. So keeping the, the, the liveness going. And the book that changed my, that gave me all the insights I needed, I came across at that time. It's called Homo Ludens. Man, mm-hmm. the player by uh, Johan Hoitzinger. He's a Dutchman, an historian, and a philologist. In other words, he's into, like Nietzsche, he's into the meaning of words and was very concerned with the meaning of words. And this book says that all cultures have an element of play in them, but some much more than others. And the ones that have least play of all are the communists and the fascists and the fanatical fundamentalists of any religion because they don't like fun. They find fun threatening. It terrifies them. So they're the people who rule by fear and terror. And the other lot rule by giving people a good time. So you've got a matter of, I had a political party founded. I founded a party to be as the most fun I could imagine. So it had to be a monarchist, because monarchy is much more fun than republicanism, if you look at the history of things, because monarchy is ritualistic and ceremonial and doesn't mean very much a lot to half the time in just enjoying the show. Uh, so I made it, I thought, right, we'll keep it, make it more monarchist than Republican, though you can see a place for people having their feedback to the to the governor. But also, I'd, I'd rather look at the anti-imperialism at that time. China and Russia in particular were anti-imperialist to a very large degree. America, partly so. And the American belief in imperialism was ipso facto bad, made them think that anti-imperialism was ipso facto good. Now, I don't see either of these things as following 
automatically. So I thought, let's make it an imperial party. Now, what sort of imperialism do we want? Well, I like the, the Ottoman Empire. I rather like the Persian Empire. I think the British Empire is really pretty good, actually, considering in terms of peace and progress and, and uh, law and order and the sort of things that I like. So what about having an imperial? I'm bound to be hated for this. I'm going to catch it in the neck for being an imperialist. So, But I like that. Let's get attacked. Then we can reply back about how bad anti-imperialism is, particularly since the destruction of Africa, because Africa was going quite well until they, got, until they put the, uh, the anti-imperialists in power there. And I thought, well, what else must I do? Well, let's see. I must admit it. I am British, and I can't seem to help that. It's my, my uh, inheritance. It's been going a long time. It goes back a long, long way. And you think, look at Blake and Milton and the great uh, uh, supporters of this idea that there's something special about these people that they created, as it were, the rule of law, largely, parliamentary democracy, uh, and the sense of humour, which is the, that's, the, that's what decided it for me. Which culture has the most wonderful sense of the absurd, the sense of humour, how ridiculous life is? Christians are very good at this, more than most religions, but particularly those come from Northern Europe, so... That'll do me nicely. I'll, I'll found the Imperial British Conservative Party, which is also my initials before I lost my name, became a wizard, IBC. So that'll suit me nicely. And I was looking at people like um, Muhammad Ali at the time, the way he, by using, like Bugs Bunny, by using these irritating, hideous little poems and his awful poetry, he got his opponents really worked up into a lava. And, and the fact he was very light on his feet meant he could have more chance of surviving these heavyweights than most. So Muhammad Ali... He had, a, he had a very broad approach to the the conquest where he saw it as extending not just beyond yes, exactly. uh, the amount of weight that was put into each punch in the ring, mm-hmm. but the psychology and exactly. the the image of if you're going up against the greatest who is looking at you with complete confidence and he's going, <laughs> I'm obviously going to win this fight, so let's have you know fun. And you're like, well... How am I supposed to believe in myself that I can win if this guy's got such a confident demeanor and image? Yeah, and he's, you know, he's on the cover of magazines saying he's the greatest of all time. Yeah, so when you say that and you're boasting, you're bragging. That's a very good form of ego. I'm an egotist myself. Mm-hmm. I can't be a narcissist, and I'm certainly not a neurotic. And nor do I believe in anything. I don't have any beliefs, so I have to be. An what, what is the difference between egotism and narcissism? Oh, narcissism's got no ego at all. They don't have mm-hmm. an ego. They they just fake it all the time. They say they they say what people want to hear. They flatter people. They uh, they give a good impression. They want to be loved by everybody. They'll do anything to be loved. It's their only. They've got no no ego at all. Usually, with someone who has got an ego in the background, a wife or a husband that has got the ego, and they rely upon them. I've seen this is the time of narcissism now. Anyway, egotism is the great enemy. Everyone has egotism, and narcissism, being nice and saying the right things, gets you a long way. But what, what the Nazis do is simply horrifying. They're, if you look at what the, the, by their fruits, as Jesus said, by their fruits shall you know them. If you look at the fruit of what they do, of what they actually do, it's terrifying. I'm a pragmatist, so I look at what happens and not whether mm. it should be happening or not. And I, that's why the fun evolution works, because no one thinks that fun has any use at all. They all think <laughs> fun's a waste of time. Oh, it's okay. You can think that if you like, but I don't. <laughs> And this, when you when people realize that as a wizard, I'm a fun revolutionary, they relax a lot. If you're not a fun revolutionary wizard, they get a bit scared. And I don't blame them. There's some very weird guys around who have this power, like someone like Hitler has this magnetic power, and people in his presence feel it. Now, in my, no one feels that in my presence, but they do feel that they, they don't know what the hell I'm up to next. They can't predict what I'm going to do. That scares them a bit. 
Um, but if you follow the, the the pragmatist approach, you will do things that don't make much sense in terms of of a of a narrative. Because you're focused on the results, so each action doesn't have a clear narrative. Is that the idea? Yeah, sort of. It's like a bit like there's a philosophy, or this isn't a, something of situationism. It's a bit like mm-hmm. that, except I'm heading towards heaven all the time. That's where I leave most of my compadres behind. I had this interest in heaven, which I've always had. Uh, it's something to do with a, a, a need for a higher state, I imagine. Some sort. But I can't. I don't want a parental deity to tell me what to do. I don't need a father in the sky or a mother in the sky. So I prefer to think of it as a, like the Chinese Confucians thought of it, just a higher plane of being, which we don't reach. And the, that's why I like the With dark. its own bureaucracy and its own complications. I don't know if it's got a bureaucracy. I doubt it's got a bureaucracy. It's certainly got a hierarchy, which is, yeah. not a, which is the opposite of bureaucracy, of course. Hierarchies are based on skill and what actually happens rather than uh, uh, sort of mechanical, it's a machine bureaucracy and not, mm-hmm. uh, not a flow, not a flow system. That's why I like the idea we move from the mechanical age of the uh, Enlightenment into this now electric age, which is a very different one where you have force fields and you have sudden change in polarity and you have things melting down everywhere. Uh, so this is why uh, Marshall McLuhan influenced me a lot at this time, his idea that we were living in a post-literate society, which brings me to another point, and this is the fact that human beings don't live by words. It, we, people insist we live in the, and that words make us human. It looks as though human beings created their own particular social forms before they had words and it was done through music, dancing, gestures, and uh, posturing, and generally interacting between each other. And then words came later, and that's when it went really dangerously wrong, because the words can go one way, and the gestures another. And then you get this ghastly confusion of the narcissists. Mm. Yeah, the words and gestures is a is a challenge that I think we face even more now with so much of our communication occurring in places where we can't see the gestures or the face. And so we're trying to figure out from uh, a short sample of words, what someone's intent and tone was, or now we're using hieroglyphs and emojis and other sorts of things to try and understand uh, these things that uh, we're wired to look for, you know, movements of eye muscles and other subtle patterns that we can recognize very quickly. Yes, I see the struggle now between <clears throat> the power of love and the love of power. Mm. Now, in the square, when I first arrived in Christchurch, I appeared in this new square that just cleared out the buses and made it into a lovely big square right by the cathedral. It's a very big square for, the, for this part of the world. And I arrived, I saw the council, people first said, I'm going to speak in the square. Here's my recommendation from the University in, in Melbourne. I saw the police and said, I'm going to speak in the square. I don't swear. I'm not recommending any sort of violence, just as long as you know. And uh, I stood up in the square as a wizard with my pointed hat on and said, I'm a wizard from the universities and I'm here to speak. And I'm an orator, which means I don't he- I'm not here to get a message across to you. I'm not here to get any followers. I'm not here to start any political parties. I'm just here to have fun, basically. And I began to speak. And when I spoke, I said, by the way, you're not, you don't believe what I'm saying. What I'm saying is neither true nor false. It's just me speaking. So take it as a performance. This is a show. This is someone who enjoys the art of speaking. And the reason I speak is that if I stop speaking, I have to listen. And what I hear is such <laughs> rubbish. I don't want to hear that rubbish anymore. I've had enough of it. Newspapers, radios, television. It's nothing but rubbish. Now, my stuff is much better. 
And off I go into the into the battle between the man and woman. This is the big issue in the world, always has been. The battle between male and female principles going on nonstop. And right now the male is losing hand over fist. It's time for the males to get their act together and come out on top again if they can. So it'll be a struggle for power between male and female. How it's done is done through roles, and the roles are the key ones. So which role are you going to take up? My role as wizard is pretty handy, and I've also got a female in my in my life who is not a wife or a mother. She's not a sex object. She's not giving me babies. She's there to be my, my battle partner, and she's mm. very different from me. And she feels and senses things very differently, and she doesn't speak very much, <laughs> which is a start. She also doesn't have the same sense that the observer that I have. So we've got a got the battle there. So in the square, I'd get up there, and I'd always say, what do you think? At the end of my speech, I would quote from a well-known English comic comic program called Morecambe and Wise. And the answer was, he put on these terrible plays, and, he'd, and during the play, so he looked at the audience and said, what do you think of it so far? And the audience would always shout back, rubbish. So I did this regularly during my speeches. I'd get to the point and say, what do you think of it so far? And they'd all shout back, rubbish. But they stayed to listen. They were enjoying mm-hmm. the stuff for its own sake. It wasn't for any future plan. They got nothing out of it. There was no marks to get a degree. There was no money. Do you get more money? You didn't get any more votes by doing this. It was sheer joy of the of being. This is very good therapy for me and my crowds. And still now, after 40 years, this is 50 years ago almost, after all these years, people say, oh, I love those speeches in this crowd. They were really good. And they couldn't say what it meant to them. But something happened inside them as a result. They haven't forgotten it after all these years. Another thing I used to do, I had a large plastic hammer. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a, made of it's just air inside, like a bellows. Mm-hmm. And you hear people on the head, it makes a squeaking sound, like boing. And I used to, get, <laughs> I used to bless the children. They'd, they'd queue up at these, in these big festivals we have. The children would queue up in a long line and kneel down, and I hit them on the head with this hammer as hard as I could. And they loved it, and they haven't forgotten it. I remember hitting on the head with the hammer. So touching the head in a, in a sacramental situation has a huge effect on people. For, well, another of these weird things that's going on, and you think of the coronation of the sacred oil, and the blessing of the head, all these things. So you're using these ancient gestures and ancient uh, ceremonies to boost this feeling of ecstasy of being outside of the normal world in a special place, a special time. And you're also creating a situation where because it's becoming an institution, because you're doing it regularly and people are aware of this, if you just were walking around and offered to bop someone's kid on the head and say, get away from this, you madman. But when other people have lined up, suddenly the kids are crying, mom, mom, I need to get in that line. I need to get in that line. That's right. It would be yes. more damaging to not to be the only one who didn't get bopped on the head. Oh, yes, that's right. Yes. And so people after 30 years said, I remember when you hit me on the head that time. Was it? This is so, so wonderful to hear this. These are the things that aren't just words. Now, when it comes to words, I'm pretty dab hand too. As you'll see from my essays, I can prove almost anything using jargon. So I go to all these depth psychology texts. I dig up the stuff from social sciences and cultural theories and I bombard them with bullshit and spin. And the, the aim is to dazzle them so much they say, oh, what the heck, and give up because and live in the present again, get back to the present time again. 
that's one of the things that I've been thinking about lately as we go into this wor- world of ideas and symbols and pictures. There's places where it gets uh, almost hard to navigate because the jargon is so dense and the yeah. ideas are so abstract. And that's where something like a narrative is very helpful because you can tell a story that's embedded with these values and emotions and that really gives them a place to go. But when you just want to catch them head on, you you think you've grabbed it and you look at your hands and you actually have a confusing mess and it's it's uh it gets very difficult for people to know when something is real and when something is just uh the appearance of something real well what i designed was a narrative which leads to my rising in the air and vanishing that was the big narrative i set out in 1972 and i tried to carry it out in a new zealand as a mass media spectacle in which i would promise that i was going to try and rise in the air and disappear and get to heaven And Mm -hmm. I based the narrative on all the ascension theories of the shamans going up the the tree, the tree of life, which my cosmology takes the form of a tree of life. As you ascend, you go more and more refined from matter up to life, up to mind, up to to, to myth, up to Mm -hmm. uh, ideology, and then beyond ideology into the realm where you can't say what it is at all because no words can be used. And the right. idea was to make this into a practical joke. It was my idea of sending myself up by doing something so ridiculous and so absurd. It would, it would make everyone fascinated by the by the arrogance of someone even try and beat death. Because the idea to me was to beat death. Now, one thing I cannot bear the thought of is immortality. It terrifies me. Being oh, yeah. immortal is a nightmare. And it's what kills all magic, too. In so, There are one or two books which make this point that once you believe that you mustn't cease that you must go on as an ego or as a body or through your children or through your name or through your property or your reputation, whatever it may be. The idea that you can't cease is, is, is a nightmare. Your ego is so massive, you must just end. Now, I don't mind ending, but what I don't want to happen is end up being immortal. So I, try, I told my follower, if I did succeed in disappearing like this for no apparent reason except for fun, um, they must make every effort they can to destroy all record of my existence. Because if I'm famous for disappearing, I haven't disappeared to become immortal. So mm-hmm. their job was to destroy all record I ever existed, which would make them very famous in the process. <laughs> and, 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 on, and on it goes. My master said I must remove all evidence that he ever existed. You know? Now, this is the opposite of most followers who live on the fame of the master. <laughs> it's it makes a very me think pure. I was... I was just talking with a friend about the Pyramid of Giza and how that was the entire goal was to live on forever by having a giant monument and the pyramid's still here. We're still talking about that. But the only representation of the pharaoh who built it is a completely decroted, small, little yes. three-inch statue. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but he didn't care about being famous. He was trying yeah. to get he was trying to get to heaven. They were they were immortality machines. It was all designed. Mm-hmm. To somehow project the his soul into where well, Sirius or it was they believe heaven was, but the idea it was like a great complicated machine that would send him to heaven. But it was also a very good way of uniting the country. So it was integrated the community very well. It produced an aesthetic aesthetic pyramid. No, I I rather like the the idea of combining your moral system, your need to be uh, to to integrate yourself with the community, to build and bring more together to have an idea of uh, transcendence so you've got a, a higher aim in life than just having babies and working and eating and drinking 
it all came together quite well there. I, I, I think the, the, the experience probably varied on whether you were the person overseeing the project or you were the uh, slaves that were hauling the stones. But no, it didn't, it didn't have slaves, apparently. Very few slaves. They were oh, really? Well, they were very well fed. They were the elite. Uh. They did get they did they did get rather badly damaged in carrying those stones around. So they got the bodies, and it yeah. shows that they were stressed a lot. Of the, but they were actually well fed and well looked after, and they loved what they were doing. They had a little town of their own where they built their own little pyramids for themselves. So that story <laughs> of the slaves is a lot of nonsense, I'm afraid. Oh, interesting! I had not known that. Mm. So, what drew you to Christchurch? What was what what pulled you there of all places? Well, it was the nearest place to the Antipodes Island, which is where I wanted to do my ascension. I picked mm-hmm. the spot that's the centre of the water hemisphere. Now, there are various prophecies about the water hemisphere in Dante and in the Bible, which say that this is where the the, uh, the the mountain was that was purgatory, among other things. But there was also, this, there would be a myth of a rising, something but a rise from the centre of the water hemisphere. And it's so remote that being remote, you're not affected by all the vibes from other places. So you're you're rather away from the the uh, the lower level interference you get in any where there's a mass of people in a great area. Mm-hmm. And also New Zealand is one of the perfect examples of a well-run society. It was the best welfare state the world ever saw in the 1930s and 40s. It was a friendly place all around. They integrated very well. The Maoris joined in with the, uh, the, the people from Europe very well and formed a, unif- a united identity being British. Mm-hmm. And being British, they would join the British Army and fight against the Nazis or the Kaiser, or what it was. So they had integrations very strong. But one of my big tests was The Goon Show. This is this English radio comedy series, which is so complex and so weird and so nonsensical. It's influenced a lot by Indian philosophy, I believe, from Spike Milligan, who was brought up in India. But The Goon Show was one which was so absurd, it just you just couldn't be, it isn't just wisecracks or jokes, it was bizarre in the extreme. And it was every week he came on the radio, and, it, and a lot of people used to listen to it in England, and the next day we'd talk about this ridiculous programme. And I, then I was interested, who else liked it apart from the English? Mm-hmm. And it turned out it was very, very popular in Australia, and even more popular in New Zealand. Well, if these are people living on the other side of the earth and they have this sense of humour, they can't be that stupid. <laughs> They've got this very subtle idea of the non- that life is essentially absurd. And um, that, so that worked out. So that's one reason I came here. Uh, it took America much longer to get it. And America hasn't developed the same um, sense of the absurd. They, they still think they're kind of a, a chosen people. And they, they had this thing about the first, they're the first free country, which is nonsensical. Uh, also, the idea that they are you know, uh, better than the people they left behind and the British because they've got a silly old monarchy, which is rubbish, and we've got a wonderful president, which is great. So the they called George um, Washington George the Fourth, which is about what he was, really. <laughs> anyway, he was a good man and all that, but it was just they'd still had a king. He's just a different sort of king. And the one in, they copied the one in, I think, the Doge. It was the, I think it was the Venetian Republic that inspired the, the founding fathers to produce a new form of government with a, with one man at the top, but it was a very complex way of getting there, like the electoral colleges and all that stuff. It's very complex in America to get to the top. In England, it just happens you're born in a certain bed at a certain time, and you hope for the best. You don't always get a good one, but sometimes yep. you do. <laughs> and you hope that no one, no conniving relative knocks you off before you get your chance. Yeah, that's, yeah. Well, that, that, that's like in the, the Game of Thrones, of course, is based on the Plantagenets, who are a bit like that, who are a rough lot. 
but there are one or two good ones. So, and I like that structure, the, the hierarchical structure, rather than where you organize the votes through, through ward bosses. And, and, the, and it's actually um, plutocracy. Democracy is really ruled by the, by the rich in various oh, disguise, yeah. disguised ways. And that's what we have to get away from because we're destroying the planet right now very fast. And it's not climate change. It's much bigger than that. It requires us to stop economic development. And that's going to be very hard to do because people have based all their meaning of life on economic development since the Enlightenment. And how do we stop putting economic development as our goal in life? The answer is to have more fun. And also, how do we stop population increasing so fast? Or to make more fun of sex and romance than of having babies and paying the mortgage? So you can shift people's um, narrative away from economic development and having more babies towards having more fun and living a simpler life. That's where uh, the importance of Lord of the Rings, the idea of the Hobbit lifestyle, compared mm-hmm. with that of the, of the industrialists. And that was an, in- an English tradition going right back is the idea of going back to the land and living a simpler life, which is what I like to do, except I'd rather keep moving than be stuck in a village. So the idea of being a nomadic hunter-gatherer is my ideal of what is a really good human being. But you've been in Christchurch for quite some time. Yeah, well, I've got a, I've got, I've got a deal with the locals, you know. They're all, yeah. they're all, they've got a narrative that's very different. But the narrative here includes a wizard, which is yeah. very hard for intellectuals to figure out, and therefore they just don't want to know. They, they don't admit I exist. They don't mention my name. I'm kind of like a huge presence here. Everyone knows I'm here. Everyone knows what I get up to and how I annoy the bureaucrats and the government and the churches and all the others. But they can't think about it because I'm much smarter than they are, and no one ever comes to the square to criticize me. They can't. <laughs> they just stay quiet and hide at university and say he's an idiot. <laughs> now, I'm con- when I find someone who's smart, I want to listen to them for a long, very carefully, for quite a long time, and then I start to stir. Then I start my, my questions and my comments. But you have to listen first to figure out where they are before you make the attack. Mm. So what, uh, what are your favorite questions to, to get at? First thing I say, I'm a, I will go about reality. What is more real? What's the most real thing? And my answer is always the same. Reality has always been, is now, and always will be what the boss says it is. The question <laughs> is, who is to be Who's master? the boss? Who is the boss? Yeah. <laughs> and then I explain I am a real wizard because I have university appointment made by the administration of the university. I was appointed wizard by the City Council of Christchurch, their official wizard, in 1982. And in 1990, I was appointed wizard of New Zealand by proclamation from the Prime Minister. It's quite public. He simply said, you are the official wizard of New Zealand. And my jobs included driving out demons, which I love to do. I was them around. And uh, putting the world the right way up, that is south up, New Zealand on top. And to encourage small businesses, I like people who use have entrepreneurial skills. Anyone who takes risks with their own money is my friend. Anyone mm-hmm. that wants to have his, his, his life paid for by the government with a pension and a nice security and his health care is a slave, and I don't like slaves. I try and avoid them. <laughs> so I'm I'm curious about uh, your ascension project, going mm. back and mm. finding an earlier thread, and. Uh, Obviously, since we're talking now, I feel like you haven't quite uh, found your way into disappearing. Uh, no, to... no, I failed. I'm going to die. I know that now. <laughs> but at least, at least I had a go at it. You know? <laughs> I had to try. 
Now, in my book, there is a, there's a chapter, there's an essay called The Hunting of the Boojum, because mm. I based my strategy on vanishing on The Hunting of the Snark by Lewis Carroll, mm. one of the most mysterious books ever written and full of most astonishing ideas, but expressed as nonsense which it has to be, because what we have a sense is such rubbish, especially to avoid it altogether, and get the nonsense. One of the strategies was to, the, the, on their boat, that they go to the island to make the vent, to look for the boojum. They don't know, the, the, the captain doesn't know which is the front end or the back end of the boat for a start, which helps. Yeah. And secondly, he hasn't got any conventional signs. He has a map with no conventional signs. If you do as I've done, and use modern physics to invert the present model of the universe, you end up with the universe in which the Earth is on the outside, the universe is on the inside. It's just turned inside out. All you do is invert the coordinates of the mathematical formula. It's very simple. Mm-hmm. It's like turning the world south up. There is no proof the Earth is north up or south up. It's what the boss says it is. And there's no proof the Earth is a sphere that goes around the sun, which goes around the center of the galaxy. It's just a theory. It's just a model. The other one's just as good, but it's no good for ballistics. Now, the reason why yeah. the world adopted Galileo was he gave them good ballistics for their weapons. That was the main reason. It doesn't make much sense. That's kind of what drives a lot of science is we're, we're the most interested in things that fall back into those goals of economic expansion. Yes, and- the military-industrial complex. It goes back to that one. And that was invented by the Protestant states in the Reformation because they were up against a massive papal army, brutalist streamed, who wanted to wipe out all the Protestants, so they had to have to fight back. They needed, therefore, very sophisticated weapons, and they developed the, instantly took up the Copernicus theory, rather Galileo's theories, and they had a very efficient military system, and they also invented a lot of bureaucracy to make them more powerful, whereas the uh, the traditional armies were full of people wearing lovely uniforms and charging on horses and doing all sorts of glorious things, they were out. We've got the new armies, if you like Cromwell, the model army are not like that. They're killing machines, yeah. just like the Romans, killing machines. Well, I'm, uh, you'll forgive me one second, I need to gather my thoughts, because that's... Uh... <laughs> I, do what, I do hop from branch to branch like a small bird quite frequently. <laughs> Or a squirrel. I've, I've, been, I've been enjoying watching <laughs> squirrels and the way that they hop from branch yes, to branch. Yes, yes my <laughs> mind works like that, I'm afraid. Your, your process of going out into the square and giving lectures, were these lectures that you would prepare? Uh, no, 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 no. These were all extemporaneous speaking. Absolutely. You had to play the, you had to play the crowd. You watch their eyes while you're doing it. You play the crowd. Now, the best one was always the evils of women. That was my best speech. How they caused all the wars because they go shopping. That means more raw materials. If men weren't controlled by their wives, they'd be fishing or hunting or playing football. They wouldn't be fighting wars. They might play football, but women want material things, and that means you've got to have oil preserves and all sorts of materials and all the shipping lanes are very full of people carrying things about the place. So women's desire for things, their, their need to shop, which is instinctive. They, after all, they are gatherers by nature, was one of the reasons for war. The other reason for war is having babies. Because if you make having babies important, and that means religion, basically, because religion's based on having as many babies as possible, if I can see, um, Being able to or, spread your culture as far yeah, and wide. So yeah. they cause wars because there isn't that much arable land. So if you make having babies important, then you need more arable land. So the wars have to start to get more arable land. So the only people who don't have problems are the hunter-gatherers. And the hunter-gatherers, women don't control the men. The women are, live their own lives. They get all the food themselves. The men piss off into the woods and have fun and go fishing and 
<coughs> so on, and decorate the rocks and change the course of rivers because hunter-gatherers, they love terraforming, apparently. They changed the shape of forests. They changed the rivers. They painted all the rocks lovely colours. They made, they made a kind of cinema in underground caverns with these animals' paintings on the wall. I think it's a pretty good life being hunter-gatherer. They lived very healthy lives. They had good diets. And they loved to show up and dance and sing all the time. Pretty good crowd, really. Not perfect. I'm sure they had some nasty things happening. But compared with agricultural people, I prefer hunter-gatherers. Well, there's the idea of uh, intergroup conflict, and the more that you have other groups around that you are in competition with for your survival, the more you have to figure out that clever way. And when you have hunter-gatherers that are spread over a wide variety of land, and you're not bumping into each other's quote-unquote territory, it removes a lot of that pressure, and so you're more apt to uh, you know, yeah, share yeah. some of the resources that you both have and can and spread across rather than... Uh, I'm going to take all of your toys and go back to my. Well, animals do that too. Animals have territory which overlaps, and they know mm-hmm. that this bit. Sometimes that animal can go there. Sometimes they can't. So they stretch. They 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 fill the environment with with little uh, markers of various types, whether it's smell or visual or just just being present. It's very interesting how that works. Now look at this. Here's an interesting. If you if you want love more than hate, look at the hunter gatherers. They don't hate agricultural people. The agricultural people, the, even the hobbits, hate the hunter-gatherers and, dis- and try and destroy them. It's always a war in which the, the village people, the la- people who grow things on the land, will try and kill off or get rid of the hunter-gatherers. But when you get the beginning of towns and trading and currencies and, uh, and markets, then suddenly the, uh, the townspeople begin to hate the rural people and destroy them if they can. And the townspeople tend not to have religion because the religion is the trading Everyone's equal in the market. There's no separation between one religion and another one in the marketplace. We're all Mm. the same. We're all after money and profit. So the marketplace develops a kind of mentality of the the urban uh, people, and they despise and hate the peasants. I mean, Marx really hated peasants. So did the capitalists, socialists and capitalists, both despise and hate the peasants because they grow their own veggies. They don't pay taxes. They believe in fairies. They have wide, big families and help each other out when there's trouble. They don't go to the government to be helped. They help each other out like the hobbits. So you get then the next stage is the coming of the globalists. Now, the globalists don't like anyone who lives by entrepreneurial skills. They want to have everyone run by bureaucrats from the top down. So we're seeing globalism as the massive growth in bureaucracy on a colossal scale where everything is regulated and everyone has the right feelings. You're taught what to think. Education is really important. And it goes on and on from the years of five to the age of about 25. You're being brainwashed continuously to fit into the right bureaucratic category. Most of them are wasting their time. Most of it's rubbish, but they keep busy filling in forms and make people do things and go through regulations. It's not pragmatic. In fact, I find bureaucracy extremely inefficient. And I try to find people who don't operate in a bureaucracy, like St. John Amherst Brigade or the, the individual... Uh, midwife groups. There are people who do a lot voluntarily who aren't part of this great bureaucracy, which is growing fast now. now the who was it you mentioned before the uh, the midwife groups? What was the name? Well, there are groups of them. In well, the, oh, St. John Ambulance. We had a very powerful group in in Britain based on the the knights that were in Jerusalem, St. John, who do they run the uh, lot of the first aid services at, at all festivals. They have special mm-hmm. uniform. They award themselves honors rather than money and have you know ranks based on ranks in the Crusaders' days. And they run the ambulance system here and in Australia and Britain. 
So they act as a voluntary group, and they therefore are much more efficient and costless than those that are run by the state. The state is essentially a Prussian creation, I reckon. Bismarck invented the welfare state, and the and Hegel gave us the, the Marxist state. And I don't like either. I don't like the state at all, quite frankly. I prefer a local community. Well, as you scale up and you get into uh, structures that support larger and larger institutions, the individual units you sort of sand down into smaller and smaller pieces. So you have to break up the clans and kinship yes, institutions exactly. to put people into um, into cities and to organize them that way. And then you have to change the family networks to make nuclear it focus on the nuclear family. Exactly. Terrible thing. Terrible and thing. I think even now we're continuing to see this in new ways where we're very defined as individuals and and uh, all of the other ties that bind us to any group are becoming fainter and fainter and are completely customizable. So it's which uh, yeah. which channel do you want to be on? Which show are you going to watch? Which, uh, yeah, right. which job are you going to have? And all of those can be just reorganized to suit the larger organization. The surveillance state can do that. They can watch you and know what you want to do. They can carefully shape you and groom you to be the perfect citizen which is, of course, a solo parent, basically, because even marriage is seen as, a, as, a, as, a, as an infringement on your liberties and freedoms. As, uh, as we continue to move into the 21st century and you know the magic that we have through technology is, is mind-blowing, the, the fact that we're on opposite sides of the world and we're chatting freely right now yeah. is, mm-hmm. is incredible. But at the same time, I think we're well aware of all of these problems that the state presents. What advice do you have for... Um, you know, the wizards of the 21st century and everybody else who's interested in, in fun and, and taking on your mantle and legacy? Well, I think fun is the answer. If you pursue fun as your first priority, you can't be trapped too badly. So you don't, be, you don't get trapped by love. You don't get trapped by hate. You don't get trapped by um, some ambition, rather. You simply live in much as you can for fun, and it, it starts to change you. You end up becoming wiser and more thoughtful. And more practical, too, because people who have fun are not popular with those that don't. In fact, they hate them. There's a great deal of animosity towards people who enjoy life. So you've got to know how to sort of keep a slight distance away from people. But the key would be the man-woman relationship. If that goes wrong, everything else goes wrong with it. So I'm recommending we look at the hunter-gatherers very closely for a much better system of family and marriage than we have in our present world. And the first you notice is that patriarchy was invented by the priests, essentially, to -hmm. give men immortality. Because if you have patriarchy, you won't die because you put your seed into a woman and she'll live on and go to someone else. So all down the line, you're guaranteed physical, biological immortality. And there's a cultural agreement about parentage and who is the parent in those situations. Yes. Whereas the hunter-gatherers said that the father in the family is essentially a relative of the mother a brother mm-hmm. or a cousin or an uncle, and therefore that individual is responsible for the rearing of the children. And he'd always be there because there's no reason why a mother's brother or uncle should have a huge row and piss off because they're just part of the family structure. So the child has a male there all the time present and can be go to and can develop his male side. The sexual act for the um, hunter-gatherers is radically different from that of the, hunt, of the, of the agriculturalists. For hunter-gatherer, the sexual act is magical, and it's nothing to do with having children at all. It's to do with the, the male and the female in the, involved in the act itself. It is an extreme form of bonding between a man and a woman. 
Now, if if your man is not too close to the woman, if he's out in the woods most of the time, when he comes to see his wife or his woman, they'll be still keen to see each other. And this mm-hmm. will last for at least seven years, maybe even longer. And after that, it doesn't really matter anyway because the sexual drive becomes less important than the other drives to do with roles, connections, uh, interest in what you do together, your, your development of your intellect. All these things become more important than the sexual thing. So bit by bit, you can see the hunter-gatherers have set up a structure where fatherhood becomes separated from sex and sex becomes a much more important and much more dramatic and much more developed. I look at the development in man and woman as the growth of consciousness. And I only have one good example from the past, and that was happened in the 12th century, which I think was the high point of Western civilization, was the 12th century. Not later. I think it's gone downhill very fast. It's very clever, but it's extremely dangerous. You cannot have a civilization where you have atom bombs piled up waiting to be used. Mm-hmm. Where you have nerve gases waiting to be used. This is crazy stuff. We're living in a nightmare world. It should be got. It has to go. Where we destroy the sea, we're trawling on the base on the bottom of the ocean, junk thrown to the sea, plastics piling up like new continents. This, the Earth itself being being made infertile by lots of extraordinary chemical additives, and farming being done on a factory scale rather than being done properly in a small scale and more organic. So we're obviously destroying the planet quite fast right now. Climate change is no problem at all. CO2 goes up high up and then dissolves anyway. But it's a big scare campaign, like the lockdowns, a big scare campaign. A minor disease, which only affects the old really, was turned into a huge issue to lock us all up very carefully and create increase the power of the bureaucracy so that power grows and grows and grows, and love shrinks and shrinks and shrinks all the time. So watching this movement towards power, (coughs) this is Nietzsche's will to power, which he believed was Mm -hmm. all important. Now, I don't. I think the will to love is just as powerful as the will to power, and I will stick to that, and I'm going to stick to that all my life. The will to love is as powerful as any other power. The power of a woman who loves her child the power of a man who loves his wife, but the man has no power of his wife if you make it a property relationship. The only good relationship to a man and woman is one where the man stands firm as like a mother and the woman goes into, shall we say, a series of passionate, jealous, resentful, angry, devoted mixtures. So it becomes, it's an unstable relationship, but if the man, and it's so it is with a child, no child is going to be content to be told what to do by its mother. So mothers develop strategies to make sure the child knows it's being loved and mother will never leave. And I can think of nothing sadder than a child whose mother just leaves them or a woman whose lover just pisses off and leaves her because she gets jealous. It's a terrible fate, terrible to happen. So I'm looking at love as a growth process. It's a it's process and not ownership. And, growth, and the mother doesn't own the children and a man doesn't own a woman. But if they're in a love relationship, a mother is responsible for the children and a man is responsible for the women that fall in love with them if they do. Now, animals, the female does in fact choose the male and carefully makes quite sure that once they've chosen that male, they're bonded to that male. Now, the same with human beings. Well, depending on the species. Uh, yes, it's uh, mostly it, it, the mammals and uh, some yeah. birds too, which is amazing really. But in terms of, of love, we've got to be very careful here that we don't think of love as a relationship between equals. It's a growth relationship in which the female may leave, and it shouldn't matter if she does. This has got a 
You've got to let the female go if she really wants to. And the mother must let the child go if they want to. Now, that's where I differ from any other magicians who don't seem to take much interest in the female because they generally they get trapped by them. And most of the great stories of magicians are that they're trapped by a woman. And this is the tragedy of Merlin and of Minu and the other ones. And so how do we avoid this happening? And that's because you don't really want to get too close. You want to keep that wonderful battle going on because everything we learn everything through conflict. What the alchemists, and they were the ones who worked out the alchemical marriage, which is what I'm trying to follow, mm-hmm. the conjunctio oppositorum, the, the, the similarity of opposites. And it's so important that you find your opposite and, and try and relate to them. So this is your... This is the way you learn, I think. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, that was one of the things. I, I read your book, uh, My Life is a Miracle, and I, I really enjoyed the process you described of the town, you know, the a, a lot of the conservative Christians really being riled up that you were there and speaking to people. No, not, and, conservative, no, not conservative Christians, radical Christians. Radical no, Christians. Yes, conservative Christians love me because they're like me. They don't know it's true or false, <laughs> but they like religion. They enjoy the church fates. They enjoy yeah. the ceremonies, the rituals. They sing the hymns and they go home again. They're not really believers. They're just part of a culture that they really enjoy. Yes. But, people are okay. fanat- but fanatics do believe in a very strong way. They will believe God. They believe and they'll do anything. Well, that's the idea that we talk again. They don't the, they don't take the rules with a grain of salt. The rules are the rules, and they're the most important thing. And yeah, it, yeah. it's not just I that have to obey them; it's you. And I'm going to go that's over right. there and correct you if you're not obeying. But well, I, I'm why, curious mm. about how the tide had turned, uh, because you went from being uh, at war with some of these these folks to being uh, institutionalized and, and, and regarded, and how that has occurred over your time in Christchurch. I haven't been institutionalized. I want to be, but I'm not being so. I'd love to be institutionalized. I'm trying to get that way because if I join an institution, the institution would have to change around <laughs> which is what happens all the time um, when it's in outside those big streets. But no, I'm very happy to be to be used by the council as a tourist attraction, to be advertised as the wizard, to join the mayor and trips overseas. I used to do that in the 70s and 80s, but now... Mm-hmm. I'm not mentioned any of the books about tourism. I'm probably the most famous man in New Zealand, apart from the temporary fame of football stars, and they last a year or two and they're gone again. But consistently, for 50 years now, I've been the standout character in New Zealand. And everyone yeah. knows that, and they come over to how I am, unless they've never heard of me, which is quite common in the last 20 years. Uh, the, when I said my name has now been removed from all tourist material, there's no wizard in New Zealand. It's quite clear that I'm not here, never was. If I was, I've left. So there is, I've disappeared in those terms, which is why my book and my podcast, which I want to start soon, and uh, my other stuff will begin to have an effect. They're going to have to say he does exist. But what the hell is he out about? What's he trying to do? But if you do exist, that's going to really wreak havoc with your your desire to avoid immortality. Uh, no, I don't mind existing as an idiot, and and I've got I've, I can't avoid immortality now because I didn't vanish. I'm stuck. Yeah, <laughs> I, can be, I can become famous now without minding too much, as long as it's famous for being a really uh, easygoing, sort of fun-loving guy, and not some sort of man who's going to save the world. It's and there's a book I must recommend to you and your listeners. It's a really good book written by written in 1950s by an American looking at the at the nature of the change of social character in mm. times as culture changes. 
and it's the book called The Lonely Crowd by David Reisman. Okay. And in this, he looks at the shift that took place just after the war, away from neurotic individuals who did, had an internal uh, narrative put there by their parents and their teachers to achieve certain goals, to work, to save, to get a house, to do all these things. That was their narrative structure given to them by their parents and their culture, their neurotic achiever. And they're very uptight, you know, and they have to achieve things. They don't relax. And then comes the shift towards what he calls not just inner-directed, but other-directed. Then the only important thing around this time is to join the crowd and do what they do and be what they are and all these new things, which is, of course, narcissism, where you try and please other people and you try to be like them. And this other crowd, the lonely crowd, is the result of this. People lose their sense of identity. They only are what their friends think they are, and they become very anxious about their, who they really are. And they fall for all sorts of ridiculous ideas because of this self-improvement programs, raising their consciousness, taking drugs to boost their... All that nonsense starts then. And this is the, third, the last stage before we go to the next stage of my evolution of consciousness, which is the egotistical stage, we don't give a damn what people think, where you go the way you're going to go. And this means this you can take the world with you if you start to move. And these are the charismatic adventurers. That's the next stage that we'll see coming up, I think, is individuals. They'll be populists. They won't have any ideology. They just say, I don't know what's going on. And they, people like Farage in England in particular is another good example of this happening. And Trump in, in America, where circumstances alter what they're doing and they get sick of what's going around them, and they start to make fun of things, and they start to joke and to become a lives of personality, which they weren't before. So you can see this happening, I think, in all parts of society. This will be the fun revolution, where people start to have a great laugh at these idiots who are so serious, whether they're jihadists or fundamentalist Christians or communists or fascists. They are so ridiculously comical, and to laughing at them is the only thing you can do. And that's in my essay, the discombobulating the blob. The blob is mm -hmm. the term I use to describe the managerial world where everyone's so frightened of the managers, they change what they believe in to suit the managers, the bottom line guys all the time. And the well, you brought up uh, you brought up 1984 earlier, and I think there's a very interesting concept in there where you have the Ministry of Peace, which is devoted to war, and all of mm, these things mm. where our labels are so it's almost like someone took all the tags off in the store and put and rearranged them, and nothing is uh, applied to the right thing anymore. And I saw that so much when I was in New York, where there are all of these messages that are devoted to extreme individualism. You've got to work <laughs> harder. You've got to do this. You've got to develop yourself. You've got to be the one who's daring bold go where no one else goes be that's, unique, that's be, unique be unique yeah. and yeah. suddenly you have a whole crowd of people who are desperately trying to be unique and that's a very <laughs> neurotic situation <laughs> where you're all you're not trying to fit in you're trying to stand out but everyone's trying so hard to stand out and the makes it hard way. to cohere yes and also they do it the same way they all yeah. have the same thing. All the punk rockers do wear the right uniform. That law has happened. So I do the opposite. We have out my own army. It's our civil army. We're all wearing 19th century uniform, pith helmets, red jackets, and we <laughs> declare war on everybody that wants to fight. And we fight with newspapers and, and uh, uh, rolled, rolled newspapers and flower bombs. And we have referees yeah. who give them a tea break halfway through. And they all want to be like each other. And no, no one's got minds of their own. They all say... No one's going to mind their own here. No way, sir. And they, they're playing up the conformity angle. <laughs> and the others are all wearing the same things. 
and these ridiculous <laughs> creatures with these ridiculous uniforms on just look like they stand like sore thumbs whilst being conformists. So yeah. You're just playing games again. The fun of being a non-conformist conformist or a conformist non-conformist. And the absurdity of actual battlefields where, oh, yeah. you know, here's the rule of battle and we're going to stand yeah. and we're going to shoot at each other. And how many of yours did we get and how many of yours? All right, let's uh, shoot and, again. And, and, and terrible death scenes are wonderful. Again, like children love that. A really yeah. good death scene where you, you stagger about and clutch your throat and <laughs> howl. And then, then the nurses come along and give you the the, uh, the stuff, you know, the kickaboo joy juice, which I, I love that. Um, little Abner's cartoons, lots of good stuff. Mm-hmm. Little Abner. And, of course, they get up again they fight again. And I do a spell at the beginning of the battle to make them bulletproof. <laughs> this spell will make you bulletproof. <laughs> they yeah. used to do that, you know. Oh, so the idea of war is a wonderful thing. War is so attractive. It's so beautiful. But you don't want to get hurt. So you have to design a war system where nobody actually gets hurt, which was done in the past in New Guinea and partly before Shaka Zulu ruined it all in, in the, amongst the Zulus. You have a war in which people watch and bring their lunch with them and they and they see their uncles and their cousins fighting and then they stop when someone gets hurt. Oh, oh someone, okay, stop now. <laughs> well, it's similar to the way a lot of animals fight. You know, yeah, exactly. macho bears will fight yes. until there's a winner, but they're not necessarily going to rip their heart out and throw it into the, into just, the bleachers. You just submit, yeah. Just roll on your back, show your throat, and that's it. It's the end of the battle. Yeah, that's the Like professional wrestling, which is a wonderful sport. I don't think it's done very crudely, but the idea behind professional wrestling is brilliant. All yeah. the build up of the bad guys and good guys, and all the nasty tricks they play, and it's, and it's all fake. But you know, people know it's fake deep down. I don't care. Well, that's the whole point because you can invest in it fully because you can you can let those passions build and yeah, you can get yeah. really riled up because there's a yes. part of you that knows that it's uh, that they're shaking hands behind the screen. <laughs> it's just, yes, it's your turn to be the bad guy next week. Oh, good. I, being the bad yeah. guy is much the best. I mean, let's face it. Who wants to be a good guy? It's nauseating. It's sick, <laughs> isn't it? But being a really evil guy, it's a wonderful hammer. I, I was always the bad guy in their school productions. And I love being, yeah. like being the wizard's a bad guy, the evil wizard. I think it's those lovely Christians and those lovely socialists and these evil wizards who are tricking people and getting them to believe all the sort of nonsense and rubbish and superstition. Well, I, th- I, th- I think about evil wizards because there's definitely a lot of the things that we've just discussed that are being used against people and, and powers that are being abused. But I think that a wizard is is not quite Glenda the Good Witch either because there's also a little bit of charlatanism and chicanery yeah. happening exactly, uh, exactly. That, that makes it so much more fun. And, yeah. uh, you know, ultimately in The Wizard of Oz, returning to that, uh, he's the one, you know, there's there's Glenda's roaming around with magic powers and doesn't send Dorothy back this, you know, this whole time she lets her struggle. The wizard's the one that actually clues everybody in that they've, yes. they've got the power within them. And he wants to get out. So do yeah. I. I want to get out of this place. I want to go up to heaven. <laughs> so you, you mentioned a spell a moment ago, and I want that was one of the questions that I had for you. Um, was magic is a very fascinating and interesting topic, and something that I love because it sort of defies definition. I don't try and put it in one box. It's but not a moral, lot of, is it? Hmm. What's that? It's not moral, and it's not rational. It no. manages, it manages to get between the two, and, and there's a space in the middle which no one uses much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of the ideas about magic, or at least certain st- 
threads of them are about changing reality and being able mm. to say, mm. you know, like for hunter gatherers, for example, like we're going to do some magic. So when we go hunt, we're going to come back with a good kill and no one's going to break their ankle. Um, or people are trying to do success magic because they really want to get that job. And I personally, you know, did magic to turn myself in a, into a wizard, which yeah, worked, I know, uh, that's amazing. I love the way you quite spectacularly. <laughs> yeah, and then you've got this wonderful change to your hair, your hair color changed. Lucky you! you know? What a gift. <laughs> oh, and, and and the other funny thing is I was Googling wizards trying to see, you know, I as I got this idea, I was like, well, somebody else must surely have had this idea. And I was Googling and I found nothing. I couldn't find anyone else who had become a wizard. And I did this ritual to become one. And then that worked. And then suddenly you appeared and you had always existed and you had always been there. But I wondered, I was like, ah, did my old reality have a wizard in New Zealand? Or is that a feature of this new reality that I've stumbled into? <laughs> Uh, but I was curious about your thoughts on magic and how uh, it plays into your cosmology and also whether magic is something that you have done for yourself in terms of steering your life and trying to, to make things happen. I think it's the fact that I've always been haunted by uh, Delaby Yeats's poetry, especially the one where he says, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. It was that passionate certainty that they're right which to me is a terrible thing you know how can I get around this now the moment you get moral you become right you become righteous I didn't want that to happen to me at all and when you're rational you begin to believe stuff that you know might be corrected when they find the theories wrong next year because mm -hmm. <laughs> because all science is based on useful fictions mm -hmm. hypotheses which can be modified and suddenly a theory comes along which the other theory it's no longer true. It's only a small part of a bigger theory. So all this idea of, I think like a scientist, I'm a good scientist in that sense that I like working hypotheses and I look for changes to modify them. And then suddenly you hit one like the Insight Universe, which alters everything without any major shift in minor details. The whole lot changes, like the South Up world. So I thought, well, what about male and female? Supposing that the women run the world and men don't know it. That would be a good theory. And it began to make sense to me. So how can I alter this one? So the wizard would be a role where she isn't assigned a role for most roles that men have. Wizards are seen to be beyond control by priests or scientists. They're in this other world. And also what I like about wizards is that they're individualists and they're doing it for their own reasons. They are motivated by, by self-interest and not by doing it for the world or God or mankind or well, the bloody abstract and abstractions are dangerous things. Yeah, I'm doing this for mankind. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing this for the world. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing it for God, of course. Yeah. I'm doing it for me. Ah, that's more like it now. Yep. If you are, I can do a deal with you. You want to do this, I want to do that. Let's do a deal. But if you're doing it because of some higher principle, you can't do that. So essentially, wizards are basically the ultimate pragmatists. It sounds daft, but we're the real pragmatists. If it works, we'll do it. And that's, I think, that's one of the, uh, the the ways that I come back to magic is if you've if you look at science, science is about reducing and isolating, and we're trying to take a very complex situation and figure out, all right, what are the fewest variables that we can look at, and so we can see what's causing what. Mm. But that takes a lot of time and energy. It takes a lot of resources to do that. If you've only got one go at something, you've got to be pragmatic <laughs> about it, yeah. which is where I think you know, a bit of magic is going to work out quite nicely. And when it does work out, then you can point and say, ah, oh, look, there it goes. Like uh, the magic has, has worked out quite well. And, you know, and maybe it was this follow. factor, maybe it was that factor, but ultimately I got the result that I was desired. 
The scientists can look at it and decide later on. Then it right. stops being magic. Then it stops being magic and becomes science. But meanwhile, we're going somewhere else while they're doing that. We're off somewhere else. Yeah, I always think of it as a little bit, um, you know, you have the bright light and then you have the shadows. And there's a lot of things that are great in the bright light. If I want to read a book, I'm going to sit in the bright light. But if I want to uh, go for a walk and see uh, the things out of the corner of my eye, the shadows are a lot more fun for playing hide and go seek. So I think magic is the shadowy realms where we've got enough light that we're not just in the darkness. We can kind of know what we're doing and steer, but we still get to enjoy all of those surprises. And that's the fun with magic magic is it's not like ordering a pizza and it shows up 30 minutes later and you say ah this is the pizza i ordered but the magic uh kind of taps you on the shoulder and you look the wrong way and then it's 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 got you so i'm again i'm curious about your own practice of magic do you uh do you do rituals and spells and things that are not public performances but are for yourself and no, your own no no i don't do that no i i it's a bit like throwing dice Mm-hmm. You keep throwing dice all the time. Oh, that's interesting. But one thing I will is in my is in my book. I think I have brought rain when there was a drought conditions five times. Yes, and it's, it it shook me up too much. It really scared myself to death this time because there was I had to make I was asked by various authorities, a mayor or some community leader. They got a drought and it was suffering, and the farmers were in bad trouble. Would I come and do a rain dance? And the idea was it would cheer people up. That was the plan. So mm-hmm. it was pragmat- pragmatical. The idea, cheer people up, do a silly rain dance, have buckets of water thrown over me, leap around with a big drum, blow a horn, you know, yeah. call on the skies and so on. And people would come along and watch all this and have a good laugh and feel better. I did one of these in a town in the south uh, of New Zealand. Uh, they'd had uh, The cattle had to be sent away to other pastures. They, they really were badly off. It was a big, big agricultural show. So it was a time they normally celebrate the fertility of the land. So I came along. I arrived in, a, in one of those traction engines. I really got queued up. I did my rain dance. Had water thrown over me and everything else. It hadn't, and I had to be invited some weeks before the date. So I couldn't look at the weather for God. It's going to rain. I'll run down and do a rain dance. It had to be some weeks before. And also I said this, it only, it only is a real genuine effect if it if the rain comes in three days. So it must be rain within three days. Right, you can't say, before. ah, two months later, there's, there's, yeah. there it is. You just have to be patient. This is, the real, this is a real test case. So I made it hard for myself. Well, on this occasion, it didn't just, it wasn't, it was a matter of hours before the rain came. And it was a huge cloud, which only mainly in that area of this particular town. And the rain poured down, and there was mud everywhere, and everyone was shocked up to the core of this ridiculous event. Everybody got plastered on. The whiskey was around. The wizard was the state of the town. It had a full page of the New York Times on that one. It was so weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then I didn't know. So I got, oh. And that caught you by one. surprise as well. Absolutely. Anyway, the next thing is, uh, I was about to do another one in a town for, in, in the north of the South Island. <clears throat> Did the same thing again. It rained two days later, too much rain. I got complained about it. And then that was that one was over. But it was a small town, no stories in the media, just a small one. The next one was a really big one. And Auckland, our capital city, had a terrible crisis of no rain. Normally it rains a lot there. The, the dam, the reservoirs are completely dry. They were going to have to drill a, drill a tunnel through to a river nearby to get the water through. It was a crisis. The water services people wrote to me saying, well, you did a rain dance. Do one for us in uh, Auckland. <clears throat> you know, just, just cheer people up. 
They wrote to our mayor, and the mayor said, yes, we'll lend you our wizard for this occasion. He's done it before. So the mayor was in favor. I got ready to go. And then before I left, I heard there was a huge explosion of fury all over Auckland. The talkback radios were deluged with complaints that an evil wizard should not be allowed to come to Auckland to do a rain dance. This must be stopped. No way is he going to come. And the, all the councils were panic-stricken, had to withdraw all support and say, sorry, wizard, we, you can't come. There's too much objection to you coming up to do a rain dance. Now, that's rather frightening, isn't it, you think about it? Yeah. This big city, the big city, uh, which, is, which prides itself on being up to date with it and all that stuff, was full of people who were terrified of me going up to do a rain dance. So they stopped the rain dance. It was not to be done. I was most upset. I was I cried a bit on television, put packed my stuff with tears in my eyes. Nobody wants me to do a rain dance. It's so sad. And then <clears throat> we got a mayor of a city, of a tall town just north of Auckland, who was in the media for years. So he's he's media savvy. He could see a good story here. Yeah. He said, well, come and do a rain dance just north of Auckland, a few miles north, and then we'll have one here, and the children can come and watch you, and we'll have a really good time. So I went to this little town just north of Auckland, and they laid on a helicopter for me so I could fly over Auckland doing the spell in the air above Auckland. <laughs> and, they, and I could announce, and I was connected with the radio stations down below. So the radio stations would tell people, the wizard's going to fly overhead, and if you don't want him to do the rain dance, you hate him, shake your fist. If you think he's great, give him a cheer. So it's up to you to decide what happens next. So all over Auckland, people are presumed in their gardens, shaking their fists in the air, or cheering as they went by in the helicopter. And I landed and did the rain dance. Uh, the children came round. And then the rain began three days later, or two days later. It was on all the weather forecasts all over New Zealand. It's begun to rain very heavily in Auckland. And it <laughs> rained for almost a year. There were floods everywhere who begged me to stop the rain. I said, I'd love to stop the rain, but no one in Auckland wants me to stop the rain. Not a single council or the water services. No one says, please, will stop the rain? And if they don't want me to do it, I can't do it. So there's no will there. So and you're going to how would you it. how would you stop the rain? Would it be a dance, or would it be something that's like no. the opposite of a dance? I'd probably do a backwards one or something. Yeah, I'd show water <laughs> have, have, in the crowd. Have a sit. <laughs> and then, the, having heard of this, a radio. This is big news in New Zealand. It's on all the forecasts. This is ridiculous. This is, they can't believe. You'll believe this. They were saying. I heard. I heard a, a call came through from a, from a big radio station in Sydney, where I began my career. And they said, look, we've got a terrible drought in the outback here. It's really bad. And there's a town that wants to do a rain dance. And that town is a town that is quite well known because it has a regular festival of country music. Mm. So this meant that they were not dumb sort of peasant types. These were sharp, you know, as a tech publicity for the town. You know, you mentioned the rain. But the farmers weren't at all happy. And they'd left, most of them gone bankrupt. It was really bad. So off I went by air to, the, to Sydney where I had a big meeting, I, I, it was announced on the radio, there was a bit speaking at the Rocks, a famous place in Sydney, about his forthcoming rain dance. So there I stood with my umbrella up, discussing my ability to bring the rain, watching the faces of the Australian journalists. And first of all, I'm a pommy. Right? That's the first thing that's against you if you're in Australia, if you're Englishman. Secondly, you've a got pommy? this Eric, Yeah, pommy. They call them pommies, the Englishman. Ah, uh, Okay. They don't, they, what, no one knows where it comes from. There's various yeah. theories. Pummy bastards. Go home, pummy bastard. <laughs> it's the usual cry you get when you're in Australia. Luckily, I'm not sensitive to racial taunts, so I put up with it. 
it, that's a tribute to the fact that they, they find us so annoying because we're so arrogant and so elitist and we know more than they do, stuff like that. So I went on about my usual arrogant way, how I've got marvellous wisdom. These guys don't know what they're going to get. I'm going to bring the rain. You watch it come now and see all this happen. And you can see the scepticism growing and growing and growing as I spoke on and put my umbrella up. And that was my big impact on Sydney. Then I flew out to this little town in the outback and the corn was about three inches high. You know, it was, it was nothing there. The farmers mm-hmm. came along with a hopeless look saying, well, can't do any harm, I suppose. So I had a few farmers. I contacted the Aboriginals first because I thought they should know that, a, that a someone from another civilization is going to do what they used to do, do a rain dance, and that they should be let to be known, let them know that, that we're still carrying on. They'd given up, but I was still going. They don't do any more, of course, but I was still doing their rain dance theory. So I did the rain dance. The Aboriginal elders were there, and they, so they knew I was around. And, I, and the, the farmers threw buckets of water over me in the usual way, blew my horn, did my dance, and uh, went, back to New, went back to Sydney and I'm back to New Zealand. Within 24 hours, there were storm clouds gathering over this little town. And then there was lightning and thunder, and the rain came down. Again, the weather forecasters were horrified. You couldn't believe this. What do they They asked people, oh, it's cloud seeding, but they aren't cloud seeding at the moment. Well, right. it's God. We prayed to God. You prayed to God for six months before nothing happened. The <laughs> wizard came, and it rained. So this, this upset the whole thing. Religion, science, both horrified what I'd done. I done it again. Back to New Zealand. And they and everyone was saying, oh, this is too much. Now, I was working out this shot. This is not likely to happen. What are the chances that in after a period of drought that lasted months, mm-hmm. my appearance would bring rain? <sighs> I just said, well, this is what it's like. I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got some dice. I've got six dice. I flip a dice, and they're all sixes. Oh, well, that's nice, very nice. Throw them again. All sixes again. Oh, getting worried now. Throw them again. All sixes. Throw them again. All sixes. That's the likelihood that this happened because of the rain dance. It was absolutely astronomically weird. So it scared myself. I'm not going to do it again. Too scared. Also, if I do this sort of thing and it works again, people are going to chase me around to cure their cancer. I'm going to become a you know a great. Yeah. Kid. It's too dangerous. So no, no, I'm giving up now. Kip while you're ahead. <laughs> what was your backup plan for if if any of the dances hadn't worked? But they didn't need a backup plan. It was fun. The whole idea. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's why I do. That's why I do things for fun, and I wouldn't do it for any other reason. So otherwise, I, be, I believe my own bullshit, and that'll become a dangerous character. Then start believing your own rubbish. That's very dangerous. That one. So uh, that was the story of the rain dances, which is like a miracle. In my book, I'm looking at the reflexivity between myself and other people. Now, if I'm a wizard, this will have an effect on other. They're going to respond to me in a certain way, and the mm. aim was to get lots of reflexivity. I got almost none. I'd appear and they'd walk away or they'd look at me and wouldn't answer. So I had very little reflexivity with anybody. They would just say, uh-oh, viva loony, and he'd walk away. But reflexivity is important to me. That's why I became a living work of art, which I can't go into now. But the fact that the art galleries in this part of the world, the, the, the gallery directors, recognize me as a living work of art is the first. No other human being has ever been recognized by art gallery directors as a living work of art. And the reasons are complex, but I, they know what they are. That was the first. They have treasures who make nice things, but I'm not. I'm actually a living work of art, which means I'm a self-made man and don't have any other reason to exist other than my aesthetic skills in, in creating a wizard. That's one reason. The truth side is also there, but that's not part of this issue. 
being appointed cosmologist at the University of Melbourne, giving lectures on cosmology, not astrophysics, but the whole thing, means I was the only person I know of who actually lectures in the whole universe, not just not just astrophysics, yeah. and how it all works. And that is my other truth. It's also the only universe which is not made by God or existed itself. It's made by me. I made the universe because the thing that I explain is a man-made construct. It's a work of art. Yeah. If you, the words are my words. The ideas are human ideas. I've got from various books, so it's subjective. It's not. I can't say it's true because it's out there, or because God made it. It's not even true. It's a working hypothesis, and therefore it's a good. It can be modified and changed because it's not God made or met or a thing out there. So this is the first subjective universe I've ever heard of. So I'm the first universe maker who admits he made it himself, but it's open to improvement. So it's, that's logic, that's uh, the other power, the, the moral power. So I'm actually reflexing now with the universe. When I, did my, when I did my rain dance, I believe I was reflexing with the entire universe at that moment. I don't know how I was doing it, what was happening, I have no idea. But it means I'm a very powerful wizard trying to control himself and bring him back to being a simple, ordinary, fun-loving guy. This is really weird stuff. I've got to watch out that I don't take myself too seriously. Well, and it's 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 like any skill where when you do it unconsciously, you can do it so much better. Yes, and when yeah. you're thinking in, about how each piece, it kind of all yeah. goes in the zone, uh, yeah, sideways, yeah. That's the Eastern stuff, isn't it? I'm very much into it, in Eastern philosophy because I don't think rationally in in a linear way. I go around in circles all the time. I circle around my prey, and the last step, I grab it at the last minute. So I don't go straight towards my prey, whatever it may be, my aim. I go round and round and round, and then I'm ready. My, uh, my, my friend's father is, is quite a character and he's an optometrist and was talking to us about how he's a, a bit infamous in the optometry community. And I was like, what, what do you mean? And he's like, well, I, 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 I talk at all of the, the events and uh, I gangplank people and they, and they don't like it. And I'm like, what is gangplanking? And he's like, I'm, I'm leading them down the gangplank yes. bit by yes. bit because they're agreeing with all of my points and they're nodding their head. And then suddenly there's a moment where they look around and they realize that there's nowhere left for them to go except over the edge. And they have to accept oh. my theory and it's too late to turn back. That's and- right. <laughs> and that's like the man-woman thing. It's all women cause all the wars. I take them down this gangplank. At the end of the gangplank, they can't blame men anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Then they look at each other and realize they've been had. You could prove anything. Bullshit is marvelous yeah. stuff. It's really, it really is. I think that's probably, you know, that there's a that's one of the fundamental building blocks of the universe. Yes. yes. He said, don't forget the one underneath. The one that we evolved before words, the the gestures, the mm-hmm. real magic that looks in the eye, the movement, the, the dancing, and the music, the wonderful music. Where would I be without music? How much of, of me? was made up of the music I loved so much, so, so much. When I was a child, I danced all the time. And not until I was forced to go to school did I stop. And it was all that music. And, it came, and various composers came into my world and changed me completely. And I knew it happened. Something had happened to me. I listened to this music. Well, I, I, what you were saying about the subjective universe reminds me of the thought I've had about 
the universe that I know exists entirely in my head and including all of human culture, like any, you know, lyrics or music that I mm. know of and the vast amount of artists and bits of information about history and all of that is all just the, the fuzzy version that I have imprinted and encoded and kept to me. And that's the only version that I know. I apparently there's a source beyond me that I'm pulling from and adding new information, but uh, the only one that I can truly reach into is the, uh, the fuzzy version that I've created. Well, I came to my conclusion when I was lecturing in revitalization movements in preliterate people, where a fig would get up and create a new culture because they're under stress or strain, probably by invasion or something like that, by colonial powers or something, mm -hmm. and they would create another universe with a different set of roles. Now, that was the key mm. event. They, they changed the roles, and that altered everything. It happened in New Zealand. There are a couple of married leaders who did that here, and they became prophets, and they had their own relationship to women, which is very different from the other one, not just monogamy, but complicated sisters, polygamy usually, but well ordered and not and not to just sexually obsess like some cult leader. Because these yeah. weren't cults, these were genuine changes. And they work really well. People's improved their, their their psyche improved. If it doesn't happen, people like that could sit down and die. There are people who are so shattered by colonial incursion uh, in their territory, they just sit down and die. It's terrible. Or the alternative is to create a new universe. Now, no one in science will admit that human beings create the universe. They will not admit it. They want to believe it's out there or that God did it. They will not accept this fact. But this is the evidence. So, well, if they did it, I can do it. And what gave me my biggest boost was Beatlemania, when I saw an entire culture transform from grim, you know, money-grubbing, sort of rather grubby people suddenly colour came into their lives. They began to dance and sing and music. From 1965 on to about 1970, it was a transformation of that sort. It was quite a big one, but mm. it wasn't deeply rooted, and the people who ran it were soon commercialised and put into boxes by the businessmen. But it was a wonderful feeling of revitalization that took place at that time. It followed from the goons, too, because the Beatles were greatly influenced by the goons and what and their and their fun-loving approach to life, and their wit and their humour, which they when they tried to interview the the Beatles, they'd come back with these wonderful smart remarks to these journalists trying to put them to a pot into a pigeonhole, and they used to bounce out, had such fun teasing the journalists in America, and recognizing the wonderful music of the of the African Americans. They, they didn't even know they had it there in America. They were doing they were cleaning toilets. These great musicians. Along come the Be the Beatles and the Stones, and but that's so and so. That's Muddy Waters. For God's sake, what's he doing yeah. cleaning the toilets? This is one of your great men, and they managed to tell them they, the English told Americans to appreciate their own bloody music. Well, I think that's again what we're talking about is like you have to have a little bit of remove when you're right up in the mix of it. It's hard exactly. for people to see, you know, what what is going to be remembered from this decade. And you could point to some of the big events and stuff, but the small fashions are harder to identify until you have a few years out and you can say, ah, that's what it was like to dress then. Or, ah, that's what's important about this culture. You know, we've dug through it and found the gems of your culture and we're now able to feed them back into you. Yeah, but also there's the things of where, do, where does novelty take place? Where do big innovations take place? It's on the periphery of cultures, yeah. not in the center, on the periphery. And New the Zealand, wet edges of moldy bread. <laughs> yes, and that's where I am in New Zealand. Yes. It's a very straight, that's why I'm here in many ways. Also, don't forget, 
never get Prospero on his island. Prospero is exiled because of his takeover coup, and he goes to this island and becomes a magician. Mm-hmm. But when he can go back again, oh, that's it. I'll break my staff. I finished with magic. Now I'm going back to my to my uh, old world, and that's I wouldn't mind doing that myself. But only if I can go back to my position where I should have been, because I'm, I'm a good scientist, and I got done by the buddy. They were a shocking lot of scientists. They were disgusting. The behavior of social, the behavior of social scientists and psychologists has been so shameful. I used to speak in the square and say, "Mea culpa." I was once a social scientist, and I apologized to the crowd that I once been in that awful bunch of thugs who were making 1984 come true. <laughs> the ways that we've constructed science, I think, has led. Uh... How do I put it more articulately? Um, There are some sciences, I think, that respond very well to hard systematic rules where you can really divide things up and you can say this is one element and this is another element. And then as you get further away from that core... Even that's not true. In process theory, there are no inner elements. Right, right, right. Everything, Everything contains will. Everything contains a striving to be part of a larger whole. It's it's everywhere, even in the even in matter. Even matter is no longer inert and dead. Right. And that's Pigogine who pointed out that life evolves from matter because matter is inherently producing life. It it's it intends to produce life. From being to becoming, the idea that there is nothing that is fixed and static. So we can't even say this is that element. We're saying it's currently right. where playing the role of that element, but it could it could become something else. You look at the thing as a whole, you can you can't see this. You have to look at individual elements in it, like yeah. the individual will of people. Marx sees all human beings as medieval economics, but not all are. And their inner world, their subject to reality, will mess up any attempt you have to turn into robots or insects. They're not going to become insects or robots. The idea of the master plan of, of turning the universe into a gigantic machine is going to backfire stupendously badly. Unless we can fix it first, by saving the world using magic, which could happen. They're still living in the Iron Age. Most people live in the Iron Age mentality. And the Iron Age gives us history. History is bullshit. There's no such thing as history. It's invented to control people. But the idea that we can choose our narratives is so refreshing. And there's a very good book written by an American again uh, on mythology, Joseph Campbell, Mm -hmm. Myths to Live By. Choose the myth you like and live by it. Now, that's a pretty good bit of advice. Campbell is one of my heroes, and that's one of the things that I found very compelling about the idea of being a wizard is you talked about being a living work of art, and wizardry is an unusual choice where I think it requires us to think about the scope of our life and how we're going to draw in that narrative and that structure and what it's going to mean. And it's not like it's planned from the get-go and then you just follow the script, but in each moment you're trying to think all right, what's the next uh, step of this narrative? What would be fun to read about in my new chapter? Yeah. Where will it all end? I keep saying, where will it all end? I have no <laughs> idea. But I do think this. When my book comes out and the, and the e-book comes out, it's going to have a huge impact because suddenly the world realizes there's a major wizard appointed mm-hmm. by a government who's been living happily in New Zealand for 50 years or so, not causing much trouble, except on the census occasionally, and painting phone boxes the right colour, minor things like that. In other words, I'm completely harmless, but I'm causing disruptions to those that mean harm, and they really do. And the effect on this reset group, oh, God, the, the, the globalizers, the Davos is going to be really catastrophic. They want to reset the world, but so do I. 
They want to go forward like Mao Zedong. I want to go backwards. Mm-hmm. Going backwards is a very good idea. The Great Leap Backwards is a first-rate idea now. Get, let's get back to capitalism first because you get free speech in capitalism, which I like. It may destroy the environment. At least you get free speech. Then you go back to feudalism where you don't get where you get a, a form of living which isn't based on machinery and and uh, and uh, a kind of bureaucracy which is based on human personal characteristics, passion, love, beauty. All these things are important again. Just look at the architecture. Just look at the poetry. Just look at the music. And you see the changes. Then you go back one step further to the hobbits. And all they need is extended families and a few wizards to protect them from the lunatics who occasionally you turn up. And well, I think sometimes the, the wizards are the lunatics who yeah, turn up. Yeah, unfortunately, there are bad wizards too. Yes, have to make this. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I, they have their quiet little village, and then Gandalf is showing up with a whole cart of fireworks, saying, "Let's." And that's the stuff. Fireworks is good, but not the other stuff. But anyway, so you leave them alone; they're all right. But I would go further back and say, no, you've got to move because if you have a climate change, which can happen, if you have some disaster, you just move away which is a much wiser thing to do than to stay in some awful, horrible urban houses. That discovery at of the first town, which is near the, the, uh, the, the discovery of the first uh, settlement by agriculture at the beginning, and they've just discovered where agriculture began in the world in, in southern Turkey. At, uh, Gobekli Tepe, Gobekli Tepe or something. And that's where it all is. You can see what happened. The hunter-gatherers came together, then began to build, and eventually they they domesticated the plants and the animals, then they ended up trapped in horrible little uh, houses where where they had arthritis and rheumatism, and they couldn't move away when there was a climate change. And when there was invading armies came, they were stuck. It all went wrong with the invention, the fall of man. So in my book, again, I look at what happened in the Garden of Eden as a very important myth and where it went wrong and why it went wrong and what happened next and why the, and the way out is there. We've got the way out too. And that's in a lot of T.S. A lot of T.S. Eliot's poems are about going back to the beginning again to refine where it all began. And that's what I'm trying to do as a wizard too, to go back to being Adam and Eve in the garden. See, I, 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 I appreciate your sentiment here, but I wonder if, I don't know if it's possible to go back. I wonder if it's more nested stories. And so as we go in the spiral, you pass the same spot before. And so uh, it's interesting that we have a biblical story that starts with uh, the bite of an apple. And now we have Apple computers, which have delivered unlimited knowledge and uh, thrust us out of the garden that we were in just moments ago. <laughs> Don't forget Newton's apple. He never yes. asked how the apple grew up on the bloody tree in the first place. It should <laughs> never have gone up. Things don't go up against gravity. How on earth could an apple defy gravity? And he didn't ask that question, did he? <laughs> well, and I did. <laughs> Speaking of important questions, let's get to our final question, which is, uh, you know, the idea mm. of this podcast is that uh, we're we're all shifting reality together, and even if something's silly, and even if it's small, if if we do it, it makes us go a different way. If we do it that day, that's a day that we didn't go the other way. And so, we like to end each episode with a small spell that the listeners can do to shift towards a slightly better reality. So, I would love your advice for everyone out there who's listening. What's something small that they can do to bring fun into their life and to bring uh, the magic of your wizardry into their own reality? 
but I'd like to do it as a visual image rather than words. Please. On many ancient stone monuments, there's a double spiral. A spiral starts, it comes out, and it winds out, and then at a certain point it changes and starts to wind inwards, back to the centre again. So if they imagine that double spiral winding outwards, further and further away from the centre, further and further away, and then something happens and it changes direction and starts to wind inwards to back and in and in and into the old centre. Beautiful. I think in the Lord of the Rings, uh, Bilbo's book was there and back again, a Hobbit story. Yeah. 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 Thank you for being here, Jack. I appreciate it. Back to the future. Back to the future. (laughs) Great, Scott. Yes. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot, Debbie. I really enjoyed it. I hope your listeners enjoyed it too. And look out for that book of mine when it comes out, The Fun Revolution, Jack's Adventures in Ideology Land, which like Wonderland is full of monsters. Yes. (laughs) For more of the Wizard of New Zealand's work, you can hang out in Christchurch, New Zealand and hope you see him. Or you can visit his website, wizard.gen.nz, where you'll be able to get a copy of his new book, The Fun Revolution, Adventures of Jack in Ideology Land, which is coming out any day now, which might mean... It's already out. So once again, wizard.gen.nz. And for more of the time and space spanning magic of this podcast as a ritual, create a little bit of your own magic. Participate in our ritual by helping us find that slightly better reality where slightly more people understand that the world needs wizards now more than ever. So to do that, all you got to do is tell a friend. Just share this podcast with someone that you think would be into it. It could be this episode, one of our other favorites. I'm just tired of promoting shit, so I want you to do the work for me. So yeah, please just tell somebody. Come on, like I'm not going to make a Facebook ad or anything. Just please tell your friends that you like this podcast and they should check it out. Hopefully they'll be into it. Hopefully they'll listen to it. Hopefully they'll take on a little bit of the magic that we're sharing and we'll make the world a slightly better place. Because if you've looked around lately, it could use a little more magic. Okay, that's me. I'm your wizard, Devin Person, finding the end to this rambling outro, slowly but surely, fading off into that good night. I wish you all the best in all that you do. Peace, love, magic, and understanding. I believe in you. Your magic is real.